Rock Harbor Church. Good to see everybody this morning. We are on page 46, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> in our study guide, yeah. Usually I have to kind of keep track of it after I, if I'm, like we were gone that one Sunday, and if I don't keep track of it, I'll just kind of thumb through the book until I find the place where there's a bunch of there's a place where there's no notes and I'm like okay this is where we're supposed to be I'll study it till about almost time to go and I'm like oh my goodness I'm on the wrong lesson and then just have to wing it so building the temple in our books this morning the central truth is that meticulous instructions from God require meticulous acts of obedience so what is uh, what does the word meticulous mean so if you're going to be meticulous about something what is that very careful, take your time. Attention to detail, could we say that? Some attention to detail. Um, you can think of some things that you've done in your life or some things that you've been involved in that required um, you to be meticulous, required you to really lock in and, and pay very close attention to what you're doing. And usually that was because of the level of importance of it. There was something going on of high level importance. It's like, okay, we got to make absolutely sure we get this right. If we blow this, it's not going to be good for us. So we got to really lock in here and make sure that we're doing everything correctly. Who's got the instructions? Read those instructions. You know, you're, you're really paying attention. And so we relate that word. You'll see it throughout the lesson. Uh, we're going to relate being meticulous and meticulous instructions uh, really to being meticulous for God and being careful about the way that we, and, I, and I, I think I would rather use it that way, that word, being very careful. And so let's use it like this this morning, evaluating how careful we are in the way that we follow God. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. Um, we're often, I mean, you think about, think about the things that you've been lazy in. Let's do that. Oh, that might be a hard thought to think of. <laughs> Think of the things that you've been lazy in and, and what that cost you when you were lazy in it. You know, you think, you know, you just kind of let things slip, you know, wasn't that big of a deal, or at least you thought it wasn't that big of a deal, and as time went on, it kind of accumulated, and then all of a sudden, you're behind. I believe following God's much the same way. I believe if, if we're not careful in the way that we follow God, over time, you can get behind. You can get behind on your prayers, and I'm, you understand what I mean, the terminology. You can get behind on your prayers. You can get behind on your reading. You can get behind on the relationship itself, and then you're coming. It always seems like, and I've been at this place in my life before. The reason, the reason I'm using this, it always feels like you're coming from behind all the time. Amen. Playing catch-up, can, can we say it like that? Lord, Playing catch-up. Never feeling like you are where you're supposed to be, constantly sprinting to get where you need to be. And while sprinting is is uh, a necessity at times. Um, maintaining is more important than anything else. Maintaining our relationship with God. Maintaining your prayer life. And I'm not talking about, so when I, when I ask you this question, I'm not talking about backsliding. Understand what I, I mean by that. I'm not talking about you backsliding. <coughs> How many of us have come to different seasons in our life where we just wasn't reading like we were supposed to? And you could tell the difference and I think a lot of it comes back to us not being careful in the way that we follow God. Not just we we've been careful about something; it just hasn't been Him. So, under let's get started. 
In reading today's text, it's difficult to even imagine the beauty and splendor of the temple. Most of us have probably never seen the amount of gold that was used in its construction. But even more significant than the material value of the temple was the moment when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple and the presence of the Lord filled the place. And we know, we, we obviously know from the Old Testament that was a great event, right? Big deal. It's a big, it's a, it's a big event. And so I'm, I want to I draw that line this morning that you understand that, okay, we're in the New Testament. And so where is the Spirit of the Lord confirming his presence with you now? Here, within the temple itself within your body. He's, he placed the Holy Spirit on you to seal you. If you've been saved, you've got this seal on you. So the way that we treat our temple, and I'm going to get to this, the way that we treat our temple is very important. Why? Because it is hosting the presence of the Lord. So we, could, we can draw that line of being careful directly across from the temple and how how they paid very close attention to the details that were commanded to them on how that thing was to be constructed and to be built. And then we draw that to today in the New Covenant, and if you think, for some reason, that we're not... Well, you say, well, it's New Testament, though, Tanner. It's not the same. Well, are you saying that we shouldn't be as careful? And if that's the case, then where's the argument for that? What does that lead to? When we're not careful, where's that going to go? And I, I, I say that because so many people, we get too, there's too much legalism. There's too much legalism. Well, it's this is this, and this is this, and we're not, we don't do those things anymore. And I'm going to make a point on that here as we go through this lesson. We don't do those things anymore. That was Old Testament. Now it's New Testament. I, look, I get all of that. I understand that I'm living under grace today. But because I live under grace is not autonomy self-government, being autonomous, that is not a green card or a green light to just run free. Grace will take care of it. No, it's not it. You're, we're missing the point if we think that's what it is. We're missing it all together. So remember, I'll draw you back to that. Let's be careful. Be careful about how we follow him. Be careful about how we treat the temple. In Luke 16, 10 through 13, Jesus teaches about faithfulness and things that might be regarded as small or unworthy of uh, much attention. As we look at the preceding parable, we see he has more than uh, spiritual matters in view. Indeed, one faithfulness in spiritual details is often borne out in practical, day-to-day faithfulness regarding tangible things, in this case, Money, and that's actually that's found in Luke 16, 10 through 13. Somebody turn to that in their Bibles. We're not going to get that, so I, I want to read it. I know this is just the introduction, but I think this this the introduction here under Let's Get Started does a good job of laying some groundwork. So I want to make sure we pay close attention to the scripture. Sean, you there? Yeah. Read 1 through 13, 16. Wait, 1 through 13? Yeah, Luke 16, 1 through 13. 16. 10 through 13. Is it, uh, yeah, I thought it was 10 through 13, but I can do one. Well, it's it, I'm, I'm talking about the, if, as we look at the preceding parable, 1 through 9. Oh. Am I saying that correctly? So yeah. we know okay, we want to cover yeah, yeah, 1 through 13? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. He told his disciples there was a rich man who had a, who had a steward who was accused to 
the man of wasting his resources. So he called him and said, How is it that I hear this about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you may no longer be be steward. Then the steward said to himself, What shall I do? For my master has taken away my stewardship from me. I cannot... I cannot dig, I am ashamed to beg, or I cannot beg, I am ashamed to beg, for or I know what to do so that when I am removed from the stewardship, others may receive me into their house. So he called each of his master's debtors and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, Eight hundred gallons of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write four hundred. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, One thousand bushels of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eight hundred. The master commanded the, dis- com- commanded the dishonest steward because he had acted prudently. For the sons of this world are wiser than their own generation than the sons of light. I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when you fall short, they may receive you into their eternal dwelling. So the idea in these scriptures, and like the lesson is bringing out here at the very beginning, is the practicality, and we've talked about it many times in here, and I love the way the lesson brings this out, is, you know, grow, being in a Pentecostal church or being in a, believing a Pentecostal doctrine, looking at the word from that, uh, uh, from that angle of, of being spirit-filled and spiritual things, I call that out because Pentecostals sometimes are the worst, and I mean, I mean this with respect, sometimes Pentecostals are the worst about practicality. And it's great to be spiritual. We need to be as close to God as we possibly can. But at the same time, being wise in the way that we handle ourselves and our dealings because that's practical. It makes sense to be obedient to God through practicality because those are the things that witness to the people that are lost. We're still I think sometimes the mentality is is if I get close enough to God and you have to this is just an example. If I get close enough to God, the spirit will be so vibrant within me that everybody that's around me will just start getting saved. <laughs> that would be great but statistically speaking most of the time that's not the way it happens like seriously 99.9% of the time it doesn't happen that way it happens with a practical argument practical uh, conversation being willing to engage in conversation and talking about the Lord talking about his goodness see wouldn't it be easier though wouldn't it be easier just to kind of like, you know, you get close, it's like, any minute now. Okay, he just dropped to his knees, he got saved. All right, my job's done. That'd be great. But that's not the way it works. And so I, I say that because over the years, over the years, being in, and I, and I love being in the belief system of Pentecostal and being Pentecostal. I believe in the full working power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I believe in speaking in tongues. I believe in all of those things, but we have to be very careful that we don't take pieces of the word and we use that to trump everything else in life. 
We got to make sure that practical living is at the forefront because that's the word of God and that's what God teaches. It's practicality. Wisdom. Thinking about what we're doing before we do it. And in this case of scriptures, he was talking about the practicality of the use of money. Centuries before Jesus' instruction on this matter, Solomon paid close attention to the countless details involved in the building, uh, building the temple. In today's lesson, we will note how the king was careful to follow God's instructions to the letter. Such an example can speak to us today as we set out to be faithful to him in all that we do, whether obeying his commands or displaying integrity as we interact with friends and neighbors. Okay, let's read the scriptures this morning, page 47. Haven, is it your turn today? All right, go ahead. Second Chronicles 3.1. So Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father. The temple was built on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite, the site that David had selected. The construction began in mid-spring, during the fourth year of Solomon's reign. These are the dimensions Solomon used for the foundation of the temple of God, using the old standard of measurement. It was 90 feet long and 30 feet wide. He made the most holy place 30 feet wide, corresponding to the width of the temple and 30 feet deep. He overlaid its interior with 23 tons of fine gold. 419. Solomon also made all the furnishings for the temple of God, the gold altar, the tables for the bread of the presence. 5.1. So Solomon finished all his work on the temple of the Lord. Then he brought all the gifts his father David had dedicated the silver, the gold, and the various articles, and he stored them in the treasuries of the temple of God. Solomon then summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of tribes, the leaders of the ancestral families of Israel. They were to bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to the temple from its location in the city of David, also known as Zion. Then the priests carried the Ark of the Lord's Covenant into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and placed it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The trumpeters and singers performed together in unison to praise and give thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, they raised their voices and praised the Lord with these words. He is good, his faithful love endures forever. At that moment, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. Thanks. All right. Part one, wise preparations for building. The account of building the temple begins with mentoring David's friendship with King Hiram of Tyre. First mentioned in 2 Samuel 5.11 when Hiram sent cedar timber, carpenters, and stonemasons to help build David's palace. Tyre was a strategic city for both military and economic reasons. Israel was in a strategic position as well, forming a land bridge between the desert to the east of the sea to the west. It accommodated trade between the empires of the north and south, adding to Israel's prosperity. The cedars of Lebanon were greatly prized in building, and the craftsmen of Tyre, the Sidonians, in verse 6, were known for their exceptional talents. A friendly alliance between Israel and Tyre would benefit both and provide the means to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord my God. Solomon sought to honor the Lord rather than himself. A good principle for us to keep in mind. Well, let me ask you that, and let's get, I want someone to weigh in on this. What does that actually look like, though? To not honor yourself and to honor God, what does that actually look like? It'd be easy, it'd be easy just to, for me to say, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? And everybody would say, amen. And then we would not really actually know what we're talking about here. 
if you're going to honor the Lord and not honor yourself, what would that look like? How would that actually look in real life? Okay, humility. Everybody agree with that? Rick? Giving him credit for everything. Giving him credit? For the good stuff that comes in your life. Could, could we agree this morning that it's a bit of a temptation to take the credit? Yeah. yeah. You feel it, can't you? It's like, I did that. I was a part of that. That was me. And so we reach for that um, validation. We want to be validated. We want someone to say, hey, you did good. And so there's a, there is. There's a bit of a temptation not to reach for God. All right, what else? You have to humble yourself. So God might be leading you down the path that you might think, oh, I'm too good for this, or oh, this isn't what I want to do. And you have to lay down your thoughts and your feelings and do what God is leading you to do. She said... Lay down what you want. Now, that's tough. <clears throat> because that's it goes back to that nature of us. We're kind of wired that way. It's it's uh to kind of do what we want to do. Now it, it's you gotta be very careful because there's a thin line. You gotta be led by the Lord. You do, but remember you can't become so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And so there's this line there that we, we follow the Lord and we use wisdom in what we do and we make sure and understand that if I'm leading this thing, if it's me, if I'm leading this thing that we call life, it's probably not going to go very well. It's going to end up in a place that's not good. So what I mean by that, and I think a lot of people have, have some good arguments over this, I've seen, yeah, I've seen sinners people not living for God, doing well in life. Sure. I think sometimes we think, well, if I follow God, then I, I went from the bad life to the good life in the spiritual sense. Let's make sure we understand that. So we got to agree on that. In the spiritual sense, you're not going to end up in hell. We should be more important than coming to God for some sort of material blessing. Amen. Like we could, let's be honest. We could all just live in poverty from this day forward, literally in poverty, and it would be fine knowing that our eternity is going to be with him in heaven. Amen. I mean, if we agree with that, then that puts things in perspective. And so I know if, if I'm leading this thing, then I'm surely going to end up in hell. Why? Because the flesh doesn't want to serve God. It doesn't want to have anything to do with him. It's the spirit that yearns for that connection. And so you can, you, you, gotta, you gotta feel that. And I, I always, I feel that struggle. And I, I, I literally, I'll, I'll point that out to myself as I, I can feel the struggle. I can feel the flesh reaching and pulling. It's like, let's go this way. And spirit of the Lord, wisdom says, no, that's not a good idea. You probably should go to church today. All right, I'm, I'm, that's practical, right? That's practical Christianity. Probably should show up at church today. Probably should pray today. Probably should seek the Lord today. Even though I don't really feel like it, I'm going to do it anyway. Well, brother, it's really important to uh, be careful about what things we put in the temple. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, we're getting there. Because if you don't <laughs> we're do getting it, there. <laughs> if you don't do it, then you're your temple is not full. Yeah. Your temple needs to be full. I'm talking about myself. Sure. You know, I'm talking about me. Yeah. 
because I, there's things that I need to do that I'm not doing. Right. And I and I confess to it. Mm -hmm. And I need I need help with it. Mm -hmm. And we all battle that. I think, I, I think it's across the board. I feel yeah. like people in the church can help me with it because it says pray for each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very good. All right. Let me let me, let me keep moving. King Hiram promised to supply all that was needed in exchange for a plentiful amount of two of Israel's greatest commodities, wheat and olive oil. The two formed an alliance that would serve Solomon well as uh, he and the nation prospered. We can learn much from Solomon's dealings with Hiram. While James 4.4 warns against friendships with the world, the phrase, the world, is often used to identify the ungodly systems of the world. We are wise to cultivate good relationships with others. All right, so let me let me ask you, what do you think about that? It's 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 definitive here. It, I think it does a good job of explaining this. So it's saying said and while James four four warns against friendships with the world, the phrase "the world" is often used to identify the ungodly systems of the world. We are wise to cultivate good relationships with others. Why is that true? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and just let's just skip a step here. I don't want to have to hash everything out. Why is that a good idea to cultivate good relationships with other people? And I think first you, you, um, you gain their trust. Yeah. And then you can, and then you can be the good example. And then you can lead them to Christ. Well, let's just, let's just use that word, trust. You think trust is an important matter today? People feel as though they can't trust the person standing next to them? Wouldn't it be a great example for us, godly example, if people can put their trust in you and rely on you? Whether they agree with you or not is beside the point. Too often we get caught up in that, well, they don't really agree with me. It doesn't matter. Integrity matters. Integrity wins people to the Lord. And so they watch you. No, you may not agree on theology. No, you may not agree with every, on everything the Bible says. But at some point in time, you're, the way that you treat them the trust that they have in you begins to weigh on them. Amen. That's godly. Someone else had their hand up. I'm sorry. I missed. Jim, was it you? Well, uh, this same, about the same thing. Mm -hmm. So if you don't put the word in you, how are you going to testify to people? Yep. How are you going to testify to the lost world if you don't have your temple full? Right. And you're not doing the things that you need to do. Yeah. And so we talked about this, uh, a piece of this last week. We're like, okay, so... Sometimes Christians form a circle, and it's kind of their area of, of comfort. Look, we all are comfortable and more comfortable being around people that agree with us. Agreed? <laughs> We're more comfortable that way. And so we kind of go about life the same way. We put ourselves around people that talk the same way and do the same things, and that's nothing wrong with that. But... Do we understand that in order to win the lost, you're going to have to cultivate and make relationships with people that don't see things the way that you do? Amen. Now, what, where do we draw the line? How do we do that properly and not step over and step back into the, to the area we came from? You cultivate these relationships, but there is a very firm line that you are not going to participate in the activities that you once did. Does that make sense? We're not, going to, we're not going to get involved in the things that we did before because we know where that took us. So there's, there's this place, this separation. It's like I develop a relationship with you. We are, uh, 
we have a good relationship together, whether that's a work relationship, we don't have to, it don't have to be perfect for us to spend some time talking with each other about our beliefs and me testifying to somebody about what God has done for me. It don't have to be perfect. I mean, think about it like this. How do you testify to, to somebody when you're only around people that you agree with? Come on. How does that work? Hey, think about it. Think about the common sense approach there. It doesn't even make sense. So if you're going to testify, it's probably going to be to the people that really don't want to hear it anyway. Right? They're probably going to be like, well, that sounds ridiculous. Yeah, I know. I thought the same thing until it happened to me. And now I'm going in a different direction. So what does that mean? That means it's probably going to be a little bit uncomfortable. You're going to have to come out of the comfort zone a little bit. You have to pull yourself out of where, where you like being and put yourself in a place that you really don't want to be. Like, I would really rather not do this because they get angry every time I talk about it. And I hate dealing with angry people. Come on, somebody say amen to that. <laughs> but if you follow that, if you keep following that trail over and over again, you keep going back to it, you'll start to notice that we never actually reach anybody. And, and this comes to this point that we start relying on the services to do our work for us. We start relying, I'm going come back to the spirituality aspect of it. We start relying on the, the all-encompassing present to just save everybody. Draw them in, Lord. Where's, yeah, okay, that's great. Draw them in. But where's the pra what practical part do you have to do with that? Actually talking to them and telling them to come. Actually telling them that, have you considered what comes after life is over? Where are you going when this thing is, is done? Where are you going? That's, that's a big question and a great groundbreaker. Great icebreaker, I guess that's what I want to say. Where are you going when your life is over? What, do you, what, do you, what, do you, what is your belief about life after death? Man, that breaks the ice right there. We're going somewhere with that, and you're going somewhere quick. And so, yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable for just a little bit, but you're going to get to the root of it. You're going to be able to share what God has done for you and that you are certain of where you are going. And so I'm just talking about practical things uh, this morning, and I hope this makes sense. Um, Solomon displayed great organization by sending... 30,000 Israelite men to Lebanon and rotating one-month shifts. This allowed each man to be home for two months before returning to work. The 70,000 common laborers carried supplies, and they were joined by 80,000 stonecutters and 3,600 supervisors. This was a complex operation, considering the fact Jerusalem and Tyre were separated by well over 100 miles. Verse 18 also mentions men from the city of Gabal, who helped prepare timber and stone for the temple before it was sent south to Jerusalem. Diverse talents and roles and wisdom were required for the project. In the spiritual realm, we are called to use the gifts and talents God has given us and utilize the wisdom he gives to anyone who asks. All right, let's, I'm going to say that one more time. I'm just going to read it exactly what it says here. Diverse talents and roles and wisdom were required for the project. I had to have everybody. In the spiritual realm, we are called to use the gifts and talents God has given us and utilize the wisdom is given to anyone who asks. So I could ask, I could say, do you have gifts and talents that God has given you? You all are all gonna say yes. Okay, the next question is more important than the first one because I'm pretty sure you already get the first one. The next one is, what are you doing with them? How are you using them? 
how is that tangibly actually playing itself out in real life? Because, yeah, we could all sit here and say, yeah, God's given me talents and gifts. Yeah. And then just leave it at that? We just going to drop it? All right, yeah, I know I got them. It's mine. I possess them. No, what are you doing with them? How is it furthering the kingdom of God? How is it assisting in the kingdom of God? How do we use the things that God has given us to assist the kingdom? And that's the, really the big question that we have to ask ourselves to probe, to probe inside of us, to find out where we're at. What do you want me to do, God, with what you have given me? What do you want me to do with it? Come on. How do, how do I go about carrying out these things that you've given me? Because often, and I'm not saying, this is not a bad thing, because if you'll notice, the gifts and the talents that were being used here, yes, they were used for the kingdom, used for Solomon and, and what he was wanting to do in the building of the temple, absolutely. But there was something that went hand in hand with this, and that was prosperity. It was prosperity that went hand in hand with it because of the economics. God just blessed them tremendously. That's a good thing. But alone, standing alone, by itself, your gifts and talents are worth more than just how much money you can get out of them. Did you hear me? Your gifts and talents that God has given you are worth more than the money that you can get out of them. Because if, you, if it's only for that, then what we've done is we've literally put a price tag on the gift that God has given us. We put a price tag on it. It's worth 100 grand a year, the things that God has given me, or 150,000 a year, or 250,000 a year. I do these things well, and it provides for my family well. There's nothing wrong with that. That's fantastic. Great. What else? Is that it? It's just for a living? There's got to be more to it than that. It's kingdom mind. It's thinking about what can I do to further the kingdom of God with what he has given me? And if God has dealt with you or led you, and that's a whole different story, pushed you in a different direction, have you been obedient to the things that God has been telling you to do? Because talents and roles, and I use that word roles, and we'll get into that here in just a minute, uh, knowing your role and operating in it is very important. Okay, so wise leaders take stock of their, uh, of their own God-given abilities and those of fellow believers. Some roles are more prominent, like the supervisors and stonecutters in 1 Kings 5, 15, and 16. Others work behind the scenes. Roles. I don't know how many married couples we have in here that have been married longer than 20 years. I don't know. You can talk to any married couple that have been married longer than 20 years. They're going to have a story to tell. They're going to tell you about filling those roles. And you, and, and you can give me any successful marriage and... One of the common denominators is, is knowing roles. This is, my, this is the husband's role. This is the wife's role. We operate within those roles, and that's how we are successful. You're not, in the world that we live in today, I mean, you're not, you're not getting anywhere without unification, unity, especially in a marriage. A marriage has got to have that. And so you talk to some of these ones that have been married for extended periods of time, and they, there's a story to tell. It's like, how did you do that? I've asked these questions before to those who have been successful. I said, what did you, how did you do it? What was it? And they always have a story. It isn't, you don't ask somebody that's been married for 30 years and then look at you like, I don't know. 
just kind of tripped and fell and made it 30 years. No, there's a story. They'll have a story to tell. Well, let me tell you what it was. And a lot of times it comes back to knowing my role, what I was supposed to be doing. I did it. I did it faithfully. He or she did it faithfully. We made it this far. That's how it works. Knowing your role. It's the same way in church. It's the same way in church. It's being, being uh, understanding of what your role is. And that's why it points out here. It points out some of the roles are, are prominent. Some are not prominent. And that's one of the problems that we deal with in, in Western culture church today is that if when people come into disagreement, they do what's called church hopping. Looking for a church to validate a role that they want. Not being content with the role that they have. Like, I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a whatever. Whatever. I don't want to be a lay person. I want to be on stage. I want to be uh, one of the upper people in the church. I want to be a leader in the church. Oh, my goodness. Is that the role, though? Is that the role that God has led you to? Because I can assure you that if that's the role that God has led you to, you'll end up there. But what's happening today is people want to strong arm it. They'll make it happen. And if it doesn't happen here, then I'll go somewhere that will allow me to do it. It seems like something's out of balance. And like we care more about what the way that we're looked at and viewed and the position we have than actually getting the job done. Well, it's no different than a job. It's like, okay, you know, if you go to a job and they say, um, like when I worked at Sundowners, they would say, they'd say all right, you're, my initial job when I got on there was to drill holes. Awful, lousy, boring job. <laughs> Just like that's my only job. They set the walls down. My job was to drill the holes like this, and there was this guy that would come behind me, and he had the, the huck bolts and these big guns, and they'd snap them into place, and that was the same repetitive job every single day. Now, I didn't want that job, though. I wanted something better. I want. I don't want to. I want to do this job. Now, when I said I'd like to do something different, what do you? Th- what kind of reply do you think I got? <laughs> uh, look, if you're not happy with your job, then you can go somewhere else. But if 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 you want to be dedicated to the plan, this is the game plan. You're going to be doing this. This is where we need you. You do this, and if that doesn't work for you, then you have to go do something different. We stay. And we grind it out. If it if it's not a, we're too used to operating off of uh, of off of our emotion. We get upset because things don't go our way. Especially in church settings, you have to be very careful with that because people get upset so easy in a church setting. And it's like, well, it didn't. I had an argument, or or I disagree with um, this, or I disagree with the position that I'm in. I'm just going to go over here. Think about that. And is it is it possible that we're chasing something, and then what we put God at the front of it, and we pretend like it's God? But I'm chasing God, though. I know this is God's will for my life. It's funny. You made it through four churches in, in uh, two years. Still looking for God's will? Might be looking for it in the wrong place. Maybe we need to turn inward and look at ourselves. That's very important. Okay, so he said, like Superman Stonecutters, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, God has established each of our own roles so we can function together as the church. And then, of course, I already made the point, stay in your role, stay where you belong. Um, and I go back to the marriage aspect of it. I cannot do the, wi- the job that my wife does. I can't. I can't do what she does. She's got a very specific skill set. 
that she carries out in our family that gets us to where we are. She's very good with numbers. She's very good with balancing things. Thank God. <laughs> and she even tells me sometimes, it's like, hey, I'm just reminding you, that person contacted you. You need to make sure and get out there and get that job done. It's not, I mean, she's so good at it. That's her role. I'm awful at that kind of stuff. And I, but see, that's, I, I accept that. I accept it. There are things that I can do that my wife cannot do. It's my role. This is what I do. This is what I'm supposed to do. Um, in a culture today where people are cross-platforming, you understand what I mean by cross-platforming? Yes, men can do everything that women can do, and women can do everything that men can do. No. Fill your role. It's your role. Whatever your role is, you fill it, and you do it to 100% capacity, and it's going to be successful. The problem is, is that nobody's happy with their role no more. So it's kind of like a, it's, it's an upheaval in the system. And so I'll present this to you and we'll keep going. If everybody's unhappy with their role, how are we ever going to get anything done? If you cater to that all the time, everybody's just unhappy. I'm unhappy. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. And we just constantly, you constantly cater to the unhappy person. We're not going to get very far. And I'm talking in, not, only, not only in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual. You're just not going anywhere fast. All right, section two, the temple built. The temple was about to become a reality. Its location on Mount Moriah connected it with God's substitutionary sacrifice since this was the place Abraham had been prepared to sacrifice Isaac until God provided a ram. From Abraham's time on, Mount Moriah was called the mountain of the Lord. Temple construction began in Solomon's fourth year as king and continued for seven years. There is repeated emphasis on precious metals, particularly gold, which increases in grade as one moves toward the most holy place. Don't you pay attention to this. Pure gold in 3 and 4, fine gold in verse 5, and gold from Parvium, likely located, uh, located in Arabia, in verse 6. Staggering amounts of the finest gold available is used in the temple. Verses 8 mention 600 talents, or approximately 42,000 pounds, and that was just for the most holy place. So I was thinking about this. You can do some figures on this pretty quick. 16 ounces in a pound. Gold right now is running about $2,000 an ounce. Do the math on that. comes up to about $1.3 billion in today's dollars. And that was just the holy place. It's minus everything else. That's some serious, that was back then, the amount of gold that went into this. This was, an, this was exotic by all extent of imagination, extremely exotic. But the purpose of it, the purpose of gold's very important today, right? Gold, silver, it's used in a lot of things. It gets dismissed a lot, but it's very, very valuable. And it's always been valuable from a monetary perspective. Gold is symbolic, it's symbolism of high worth and so when the holy place was decorated with not only gold but the finest gold they could they could produce was put in the most holy place that's a representation of the holy spirit and the value of god the people the back then they couldn't really conceive 1.3 billion but the point was unlimited worth that was the point Unlimited worth. None of this is even good enough anyway. Even if you, if you do the whole thing, even if it's two, three billion, don't matter. It's not enough. Agreed? Amen. It's not enough. Amen. 
Chapter 4 describes the immensity of the building and the grandeur of its contents. At 30 to 35 feet square and more than 15 feet high, the bronze altar reminded worshipers that God could only be approached after atonement had been made. The bronze sea used by the priests for ceremonial washing measured 15 to 17 feet across and more than 7 feet high. Many utensils are listed, especially those finished by Huram Abi, the skilled craftsman provided by King Hiram. The amount of gold used was recorded, but the amount of bronze was so immense that it could not be calculated. We'll come back to the particularness of the instructions and being particular about the gold, being particular about the bronze, and what was going in the temples. All right, so let's go back to what we talked about at the beginning before the last half of this. Being careful about following God's instructions. All right, so what I found most common in Christianity, assuming you're praying, okay, assuming you're praying, God has been dealing with you. All right? Yes, God deals with us through his word. Absolutely. I totally agree. He convicts through this word. I'm not talking about that necessarily. I'm talking about you as an individual. He's been speaking to you personally. Something is going on right here inside of you. You can feel the pull. You can hear his voice. And maybe, maybe you try to shut him up. Maybe you're fully accepting. But I know if you have been following God, and I found this out of talking to people over years, is that God is always dealing with people, his people, about something in their life. And so what I'm bringing that forth for is that the reason he does that is for the cleanup of the temple. This. Because he wants you to distance yourself as far away from sin as possible. And so a lot of times what happens is we get so legalistic that we want to see God tell us a yes or a no in the word. I'm fixing to tell you something. I want you to listen very carefully. We look through this thing. It's like, well, did God say that I could or could not do it? Let me see. Now, while I'm in agreement that we need to do that, sometimes the Holy Spirit will come to you personally and say, I told you don't do that. And you think, wait a second, I can't really find anything that says whether I can or whether I can't. And this voice is telling me I need to get my hands off of it. But because I'm thinking legalistically and legalistically minded, I'm not allowing the Holy Spirit to lead me. I want a firm yes or no. And that is one of our biggest problems. We want it in black and white. And when you want it in black and white, you're not actually letting the Holy Spirit lead you. So the Holy Spirit will speak to you. He'll deal with you. He'll convict you. You think, you ever, haven't you ever been in a situation where you're like, you know what, I know I'm wrong. I'm not sure exactly how I'm wrong, but I know I'm wrong. <laughs> I've done something. I've said something. I've, done, I've had this conversation with people before. I'll be in conversation with people. And I'm like, after the conversation's over, I kind of go back through it all in my mind. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I shouldn't have said that. That come out wrong. Amen. I shouldn't have done that. It's not, in, 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 the, in the sense it's like we carry out our daily task and then the Holy Spirit he comes to me and says hey I want you to either I want you to stop doing this or stop touching this or stop playing around with this and I want you to start doing this over here and we're confused and we don't understand exactly what's going on what is this I remember the first time God ever came to me and asked me to fast I remember it very clearly I was uh, I was bachelor living in my own spot and I remember every time I would pray 
God would deal with me about fasting. It was what we would call a called fast. But because I did not understand it, because it didn't make sense to me, I was like, I ain't never heard nobody getting called to no fast. I'm not going without food on demand. No way. But see, God was dealing with me. And I was, so I would pick this word up and I was like, all right, where did you talk about fasting? And I would find it. And I couldn't find anywhere that God had just really pushed somebody and made him go do it. See, but God wasn't making me do anything. He was encouraging me. He would say, hey, I'm calling you into this. And when I was obedient to it, there was great blessings on the other end of it. There you go. We've got to stop being so legalistic. Mm-hmm. And stop being so black and white. Listen to what God is telling you. If he's been leading you away from something, if he's been pulling on your spirit, if he's been saying, hey, this is where I want you involved at, listen to what he's saying. Listen to God speak to you. And if it's in accordance with the flow of the word and the canon of the word, then you've probably got something. God's probably speaking to you and leading you into or out of something. Can we agree this morning that we have to let the Holy Spirit lead our lives? But we we can't just confine him to one way of doing it. I believe that he deals with us on an individual basis. It's been that way ever since Christ died and rose from the grave. He gave us the ability to ask for forgiveness individually, didn't he? Then he's also going to deal with you on an individual level. Amen. It's almost like we work in reverse. It's like, no, I'm not going to do it until you send somebody to tell me. Oh, please tell me I'm not the only person that's <laughs> said that before. I want confirmation. You're going to tell somebody to tell me. And I thought, this never happened that way for me. God's like, no, I'm talking to you. I didn't talk to them. I'm talking to you. Amen. And I'm telling you. It's, I'm going to tell you, it's a grown-up move to listen to the, the leading of the Holy Spirit and not have to have somebody come and confirm it to you or affirm your move. You operate in the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's a grown-up move. And I'm talking about in the spiritual realm. It's like, you know what? I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it because that's what the Lord has led me to do. I'm going to walk into this thing. And I'm going to be obedient to God, whether it's difficult or not. Well, we have to work on ourselves. Most uh, definitely. Because everybody don't have the same problem uh, of being uh, weak as you have in that in that particular area. Yeah. But you've got to you've got to overcome it, and you've got to learn to live with it and overcome it every time that it comes up. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's not going to go away, you know, for you just putting it off to the side. Mm-hmm. No, it, don't, it won't just go away. That's a good point. <laughs> All right, so reading the last part of this is within the description of the temple, God promises to dwell among his people and never abandon them if. This is verse 12. Sadly, they often forget that they were to keep all my decrees and regulations and obey all my commands. Right? It goes back to that personalization. Yes. Being obedient to this, being obedient to God's word, but also being obedient to the leading of the Spirit, and what you are led to do will not contradict what God has put down. Amen. Does that make sense? Oh, believe me, I've run across it over the years. It's like, well, God has told me this. Like, it's like in total opposite of what God is saying in his word. No, that's not, that's not, he's not leading you. You've got that from somewhere else. You're self-motivated. You've allowed some other voice to speak to you. You gotta weigh, you gotta weigh those things. You gotta weigh them. And there's, a, there's, a, there's a flow to it. 
And so over the years, we've, I've learned that. And you listen to people, it's, look, when God is leading you, it's going to line up with his word. And it's going to be for God, not against God. Yeah, I've heard some crazy stuff over the years. I won't get into all that. Um, these voice, or verses echo God's words to his people in the law, specifically Leviticus. We sometimes overlook the Old Testament law because we, uh, because we follow Christ. However, Jesus said anyone who loves him will keep his commands, John 14 and 15, and that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. Amen. He said, I did not come to do away with the law but to fulfill it. Now, what he is saying there is that if you, if you think it's about, how do I say this? If you think it's either or, because this is where a lot of people are at. Remember, it's the black and white that we struggle with. Either the law is in place and we're supposed to do it, or the law is not in place and it's of no value whatsoever. That's the perspective. But what he's saying here when he said, I didn't come to do away with the law, I come to fulfill it. He's saying, you're looking at it the wrong way. Mm -hmm. That's what he's saying. He's saying you've got, the wrong, you've got the wrong perspective if you think it's about it's either in, instated or it's not instated. He said, you've looked at it all wrong. He said, it's me. I'm the one you're supposed to be looking at. I came and I fulfilled the law, which was a need for a sacrifice. And everything comes with Christ. If we didn't have the Old Testament church, we wouldn't know what sin was. Man, how important that is, right? Amen. I hope that you are reading the Old Testament and re acquainting yourself with what sin is because we desperately need it today we desperately need to know the difference between right and wrong and what sin looks like and so the old testament still has a lot of value for us to be able to uh, study and to to glean from okay so he said he defines the true meaning of the law highlighting a person's inner motives and desires because it comes it all comes down to what's going on inside of you the commands are not the means to salvation which was accomplished by christ's death and the resurrection and is received by grace through faith. We all know that, right? Ephesians 2, 9 and 10. The commands are meant uh, to free us to pursue abundant life in Christ. That's why you were set free, all right? So think about it. So you were set free from sin, right? But then what's the next step? Not autonomy. It's like God set me free, now I can get, now I can get out of here. That, well, hold on a second. He's going to remove it, right? He removed the chains. How many of you have said that in your life before? God has freed me from sin. He freed me from bondage. He's freed me from chains, right? I've said that before. Okay, but freed you to do what, though? Why have you been loosed? Why did he kick the chains off? There was a reason. What, just so we could go and make more money? No. No, and I'm not harping on that. I'm saying I'm, saying I'm using that because it's our culture. We identify with that easier. No, it, it was so we could then pursue a life with him. That's what's going on in our culture today is everybody's unpacking that, especially in, in uh, certain areas of Christianity. They've unpacked that. It's not about a pursuit of God. It's about God setting me free so I can go do whatever I want. It's like, all right, leave me alone. Let me be free. You don't know what free is if that's what you think because that's not what the free that he's talking about. It's not about that. It's about pursuing a life in God. And being free in that. Thank God that we don't have those. Aren't you so thankful that we don't have those chains to have to deal with anymore? Amen. That today you actually can come to the altar. And I'm not necessarily speaking about a physical altar as much as I am coming before God yourself. And pleading for mercy. He'll give it to you. It's already established. You can ask for forgiveness. He'll grant it. And you can be in a right relationship with him. That's Amen. powerful stuff. Amen. And then the pursuit. 
and then being in pursuit after him. Okay. Um, let's go to section three. Hey, brother. Good to see you. Page 50. I'm going to try to finish this thing out. We've got a couple minutes. Solomon had the tabernacle and its utensils brought to the temple. The mention of David in verse 1 provides continuity between the two kings and reinforces the fact that God was working within the covenant he had made with Israel. This continuity expands, expanded when all the leaders of the tribes of Israel were summoned. The Levites and priests were tasked with bringing the tabernacle items and the ark from the tent David had pitched for it. The entire nation offered sacrifices to God before the ark. Scripture is careful to describe Israel's act of devotion in terms of perfect unity. The sacrifices they offered were so numerous that they could not be counted. God desires his people to be of one heart and mind. This is not uniformity. Okay, we need to, what is that? What's what's, he says, the lesson is saying here, this is not uniformity. What is uniformity, though? But we all believe in the death, burial, and resurrection, resurrection of Jesus. Like there's no debating that. But there's right. other things we can talk about yep. and debate and not have this rigid line. Right. Open hand conversation, closed yeah. hand conversations. You 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 know what a uniform is, right? If you go to a place, if you go to work at a job and they have a uniform for you, what does that mean? Everybody looks the same. Every, you, you wear a uniform. Everybody looks the same across the board. Uniformity, meaning that you are all doing the same exact thing. You're almost like it's like a replication, like you're the same exact person. It's not what it's speaking of here. But often we misinterpret it as such. We think, well, the Bible's telling us we all have to, to, to be the same individual. It's not saying that. It's not talking about uniformity. Because there is diversity among God's people. Correct? See, that's the diversity. So we know that we are all different. What it's talking about is that we all have the same goal in mind when we come to the house of God. So you ask, I could take a poll here. We could ask, why are you here? I hope that it's to worship and bring praise to God. It's not a social event, though it can turn into that. Though we do get to fellowship, that's not what we're here for. Though there are benefits to being here with you, we're here to worship the Lord. And if we all agree on that, and when we come in here and we give 100% to that purpose, God is going to get his job done. Things are going to happen. But if we got a quarter of them is here for the social part of it, a quarter of them is here for uh, maybe a free meal, a quarter of them is here for... Uh, another event and then you got a quarter of them that just don't really don't care one way or the other how are we going to become unified you won't remember not uniformity but having the same goal in mind Christ striving for him more of him we should want the most of him that we can possibly get so rather God desires that we come to him as one body you know the scriptures I don't have time to talk about it you know the scriptures on the body right the hand, the foot. What is that symbolism of? What we were talking about earlier, roles. We come to him as a body. Everybody filling their role. That's what that is. Doing what it is that they're supposed to be doing. Unified in faith and devotion to serve him in humble worship. In 1 John 17, 20 through 24, Jesus prayed that the disciples in the 
following generations would be unified for his glory. Once the ark had been brought into the most holy place or holy of holies, 2 Chronicles 5, 7 through 10, the priest returned to the outer area of the temple and began offering praises to the Lord. And a cloud filled the temple. Reminiscent of our similar scene in Exodus 40, 34, and 35, the cloud communicated God's awesome presence and unapproachable glory. There was a cloud there, yes, because his presence was there, but it was also because everybody was watching and they seen it. And this was communicating, I am here. You will reverence me. I'm here, not just a building. There's something else here. So that's important to understand because if you're being spoken to and God has been dealing with you as an individual, then this cloud, which resembles the presence of the Lord, is right there inside of you. The presence of the Lord is inside of you, dealing with you, communicating to you that he's present in here. What do we do with that? It also conveyed the immense power and command over the entire natural world. The priests were unable to continue ministering. God's presence will bring his people to their knees, either literally or in heart and mind. In his presence, we are reminded of our status before him and how desperately we need him. We need him. It's not the other way around. <laughs> we need him. Keep that in mind when you're probing and you're looking in your life and you're you're asking about what God has been dealing with you about and make sure, let's make sure well, that we're not dragging God to all of our events, that we're allowing him to take us to his. If we do that, and we're careful, like we were talking about at the beginning, if you're careful about the way that you approach the Lord and careful about what you put in your temple and what you expose yourself to, you're going to grow in the Lord. I'm out of time, guys. God bless you. Thank you.